Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 5. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been talking about church historical reflection on the doctrine of the Incarnation, and we come at last today to a proposed model of the Incarnation. I believe that on the basis of the historical precedents that we've briefly surveyed, we can craft a model of the Incarnation which is logically coherent and biblically faithful. Now before I present this model, let me emphasize that this is presented simply as a possible model of the Incarnation. No one can presumed to penetrate the mystery of the Incarnation is to say exactly how God did this. But if we can give a coherent model of the Incarnation, a possible account, then this will defeat any objections brought against the doctrine of the Incarnation by those who say that it is simply logically incoherent to say that Christ could be truly God and truly man. Now my proposed Christology has three planks or postulates to it. Number one, I propose that we postulate with the Council of Chalcedon that there is one person who exemplifies two distinct and complete natures, one human and one divine. When the framers of the Chalcedonian statement affirmed that in Christ there are two natures, they were not talking about uh, individual essences. Um, that is to say, that uh, set of properties that makes you uniquely you and different from anybody else, your individual essence. Rather, what they were talking about were kind essences or uh, natures that serve to demarcate natural kinds of things. For example, according to Aristotle, um, every human being uh, belongs to the natural kind, rational animal. That expresses the nature that is common to every human being, that natural kind. So in affirming that Christ had two natures, the church fathers were saying that Christ has all of the properties that go to constitute humanity, and he also had all of the properties that go to make up deity. And in that sense, he had two natures, and so he belonged to two natural kinds, God and man. Each of us belongs simply to one natural kind, man or humanity. But in the case of Christ, we have a person who belongs to two natural kinds, God and man. Now only the divine nature belongs essentially to the logos, that is to say the second person of the Trinity. In the incarnation, the logos assumed contingently a human nature as well. So the Logos possesses the divine nature essentially, but he possesses his human nature only contingently. 
there was a time when the Logos did not have a human nature before the virginal conception in Mary's womb. And there are possible worlds where Christ never becomes incarnate. So the human nature is contingent. It's not essential to the Logos, as is his divine nature. Now, in affirming that Christ had two natures, um, complete and distinct, human and divine, I am rejecting any form of canonic Christology, which suggests that in the incarnation, the Logos gave up or uh, divested himself of various divine attributes. If the Logos, Christ, divested himself of any attribute that is essential to divinity, then that means that in the incarnation he ceased to be God. Uh, and that is incompatible with the biblical data, as we've seen, and therefore it's not acceptable as a Christian theory of the incarnation. On the Christian doctrine of the incarnation, God did not turn himself into a human being. Rather, he was simultaneously human and divine. The incarnation is not a matter of subtraction from the divine nature to turn the Logos into a man. It is a matter of addition. In addition to the divine nature he already has as the second person of the Trinity, the Logos assumes a human nature as well. So contrary to canonic Christology, the incarnation is not a matter of subtraction, but of addition. Now, on these canonic views that say that Christ relinquished some of his divine attributes, the Logos would, yes, be the same person after uh, kenosis, as before, um, but that person would no longer be God. Uh, kenosis, you remember, is the Greek word for emptying, used in Philippians chapter 2, where it said that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Um, and on canonic Christology, the Logos would be the same person after the kenosis, but he would no longer be God. Because it's uh, your nature, not your person, that determines um, one's deity. And therefore, if the Logos's nature were changed in the incarnation, his deity would change. He would no longer be divine. Moreover, typical members of natural kinds of things um, are uh, plausibly taken to be essentially members of that kind. Uh, a horse is essentially a horse. Uh, a pig is essentially a pig. A human being is essentially a human being. They, they're not just contingently those things. And so if an individual undergoes a substantial change, that is to say he undergoes an essential change, a change of substance, then it ceases to exist as that thing, and it becomes something else uh, because it's undergone an essential or substantial change. Um, for example, uh, if a man dies and is cremated and his bones are ground into powder, well, that is an essential or substantial change. He has ceased to be a human being. 
that human being no longer exists. What exists now is just powder, and powder is not a human being. So, although Christ is not a, a typical member of the natural kind man, he is a typical member of the natural kind deity. And that means he couldn't cease to be God without ceasing to exist. If, if he gives up his deity, he ceases to exist because that's essential to him. Now, of course, God cannot cease to exist. Uh, he is necessary and eternal. And so the whole idea of uh, Christ giving up certain properties belonging to the divine nature in order to become incarnate, uh, it seems to me just makes no sense at all. Now, the canonic theologian might try to avoid these problems by saying that attributes like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and so on, um, are not essential to deity. These are contingent properties that God happens to have, and therefore they could have been abandoned by the Logos without thereby ceasing to be God. He could give up omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence and still be God because these are not essential properties of divinity or deity. But I think that that entails a concept of God which is far too thin to be theologically acceptable. I think it's theologically untenable to think that a being could lack those sorts of properties and still deserve to be called God. Think about it. On canonic theology, there's a possible world in which a being exists who is no more powerful, no more intelligent, no more spatially unlimited, no less logically contingent than any ordinary human being, and yet supposedly that being is God and is worthy of being worshipped. And, and I find that just incredible to think that such a finite, limited being could be worthy of worship and therefore be God. Moreover, certain divine attributes cannot be temporarily divested um, in the way that canonic theology envisions. Consider, for example, the divine attributes of necessity, aseity, or self-existence, and eternality. It makes no sense at all to say that attributes like these could be given up uh, in the incarnation, for by their very nature, if one ever has these properties, then he always has these properties. One has them permanently. Um, but then how could Christ die unless he did give these up? If, if he has necessary existence, self-existence in eternality, then Christ could not be mortal. He could not die on the cross uh, if he gave up these sorts of, uh, or if he still had these sorts of properties. So it seems to me that the canonic theologian is forced to say, well, he was only mortal and died in his human nature, but that attributes like these are still preserved in his divine nature. But then why not say the same thing for the other attributes as well, like omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence? Christ can be 
omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and so on and so forth in his divine nature, but not in his human nature. But then you see, you've abandoned canonic Christology and you're right back to Chalcedon again, namely that Christ has two natures, each complete and distinct. So in my opinion, um, canonic Christology um, is theologically unacceptable and um, really incoherent in the end. And therefore, the first plank in any acceptable Christology is to agree with the Council of Chalcedon that Christ has two complete and distinct natures, one human and one divine. Any discussion about that first plank in our model or about the critique of canonic Christology? Dr. Bob. Bill, I would agree with the word human if you add parentheses mostly, close parentheses. I don't believe Jesus had the capacity to sin. And to me, if you take away the capacity to sin, well, that's getting kind of away from the definition of a human. So I would say mostly human, uh, but uh -huh. how would you deal with that? Uh, uh, if you take away the capacity to sin, can you really say that's, I would say it's certainly not fully human, nor do I think it's necessary for him to be fully human in order to take away yeah. our sins. The well, only now, what I would say is this. Being sin is not necessary to human nature. Human nature can exist without sin. Adam and Eve prior to the fall were sinless, and Christ was sinless. What is required would be freedom of the will, that one has the freedom to choose uh, to do righteousness. And I would want to affirm, as we'll say later on, that Christ, even though he was divine, did have freedom. And he freely resisted Satan's temptations to sin. The big difference, and then I'll relinquish. Okay. You noticed I used the word capacity. Yes. Yes, Adam before the fall was sinless, as are most of the angels. But as far as I know, all created beings that have free will have the capacity to sin. Jesus did not. That's a huge distinction. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He doesn't have the capacity to sin, but I guess I would not see that as essential to human nature. Um, I would see freedom as essential to human nature, and I think Christ had that. The, the question I think here, Bob, would be, in order to have freedom, does one need to have the capacity to do the opposite? If I freely do A, does that imply that I have the capacity to do not A? Now that's a deep philosophical question about the nature of free will, and I would say no, it doesn't, that, um, that you can freely do A even if you lack the capacity to do not A. And so I don't see that capacity to sin as essential to human nature. Okay. Ben? I, believe, I see that uh, how Jesus actually uh, displays examples of omnipotence and omniscience when as in his human nature. So I had a question about the omnipresence part of it. If it seems if omnipresence is an essential facet of the divine nature, and if and it seems that having a human body is, is an essential facet of the human nature, then it just seems to me 
that those would be in direct juxtaposition or direct conflict, direct contradiction with each other as opposed to the other attributes of God. So could you comment on how he's not giving, if he's not yeah. giving up omnipresence, which seems like well, those now, are in direct think conflict. Of, think of it in these, in these terms. If a person is spatially located at a specific space-time location, that doesn't imply that he doesn't have a wider sort of existence that would be located elsewhere as well. One could be spatially located in one's human body in Palestine, and yet the divine logos could still be omnipresent with respect to his divine nature. Especially if we think of omnipresence in the way that I did when we talked about the attributes of God as being cognizant of and causally active at every point in space. It seems to me that the Logos can be cognizant of and causally active at every point in space, even though his human body occupies a finite region of space at a certain time in history. Cindy. It seems to me that Christ did show his divine nature in the fact that he knew of his death. He knew Peter was going to deny him. Um, but is it, or can you comment that at the point of his death was when he, his physical nature died? Uh, that is, his human nature right. died. That's right. And so he did die yes. as a human. Yes. And yet he was given a new body, new heavenly body. Well, let's put it this way. His his earthly body was transformed. Yes, transformed. A, and and a therefore, body. right. And therefore, he was the firstborn of that type. Yes. Is that the way you see it? And at the end of time, all of his followers will also follow suit in being given their new divine bodies. Yes. I, so long as we don't think of these bodies, these resurrection bodies, as something distinct from the earthly body as though there are waiting for us in the closets of heaven these new bodies that we will don. No, it's a transformation of the earthly body into a, an incorruptible, immortal, glorious body. body. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul emphasizes this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And he talks about how when Christ returns, we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye to resemble Christ in his resurrection body. But there's no male or female. Well, no, I wouldn't say you that. You wouldn't Jesus say that? It appeared to be male after the resurrection. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know where I... I thought there was a point in Scripture. There wasn't marriage in heaven, right? Jesus says that there will not, they will not be given in marriage okay, maybe in the that. afterlife. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're sexless yeah. or have no gender. I mean, Jesus... Clearly, was the person, and as he as he as he was shown in his glorified body, it was in a male f format right. or form. Clearly, yeah, right. Okay, thank you. Yeah, how about way in the back here? I want to, while the microphone goes to him, underline what Cindy said because she did say it so nicely. One of the ways in which the church or theologians have re uh, treated these uh, attributes is by reduplicative predication. Reduplicative predication. That is to say, attributes are predicated of Christ not simply 
but they are predicated of Christ with respect to which nature you're talking about. So Cindy put it very nicely. Christ died with respect to his human nature, but not in the divine nature. Christ is omnipresent with respect to the divine nature, but not in the human nature. So that will go a long way toward removing apparent inconsistencies is if we remember to predicate these properties of Christ with respect to one nature or the other. Yes. Dr. Craig, what, what is happening when, when Jesus is a baby, a toddler, an adolescent? Is he pretending to not be omniscient? And what's going on there? Um, I think we wouldn't want to say that, that, that the <laughs> incarnation is a matter of pretense, that he's fooling people, especially his mother Mary when he's you know, nursing at her breast. I, it, that just it would be a monstrosity. So we're, we're going to need a model of the incarnation that will allow Jesus to have a genuine human consciousness that begins as a normal infant, little baby, grows up to be a boy, and then finally a man. Um, and that is one of the emphases of the Council of Chalcedon, is that he had a human um, consciousness, that Christ had a human body and a soul that made up his, his human nature. And we'll talk more about this, but you're certainly quite right in saying that any credible model of the incarnation is going to have to account for that. Yes, George. Bill, I think Steve asked you last week about the passages in the Gospels where Jesus says he doesn't know the time of his second coming, but right. the Father alone knows. A similar question, I think, comes or is posed in uh, Hebrews 5, 8, where it says Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered, which seems to imply that he's going through a process of learning and uh, becoming obedient. How do you reconcile right. that? And the book of Hebrews even says, and being made perfect the, uh, through what he suffered. Uh, there, there's moral perfection going on there. And I would say exactly what I just mentioned with regard to reduplicative predication. Clearly the logos does not grow in moral excellence or perfection um, in his divine nature but it would be with respect to the human nature that Christ was schooled and disciplined through what he suffered and was perfected um, as he resisted temptation, such as we mentioned before, and was obedient. Uh, he, he experienced moral growth and, and improvement in his human nature. So this idea of reduplicated predication is, is really key to understanding at least some of these questions. Yes. Oh, I was predestined to have the microphone, you see. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the growth would have been a normal part of being human to, to learn, learn mentally grow and to uh -huh. experience all the things physically that people do when they, when they grow. So that would be part of that fulfilling that human nature. Yes. Uh, so that'd be one thing. But going back to the, uh, to the omnis and, and Jesus being local... You know, you could take something out of quantum. I don't think I'm, now I'm coming through. There, uh, you could take something out of quantum physics, you know, that where you can have locality, uh, but, but another effect demonstrated simultaneously to, in a different place. So, yeah. that, so you could have him experiencing something locally, 
locally, but the divine nature is not localized. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a good analogy. Uh, I, I think what Bruce is talking about are quantum phenomenon where you can have <laughs> particles like photons uh, going in opposite directions, and it's impossible for a causal signal to reach one from the other. But if you make a measurement on one of them, the other one instantly takes on the correlated value. And so there does seem to be a sort of action at a distance, or maybe you could say there's a kind of whole web of, of reality. But I don't see that that's really analogous to saying that the, the logos is omnipresent in its divine nature, but locally confined in a body. The omnis aren't restricted to the locality. Okay. Oh, I see, yes, you could have causal influence that isn't just at that locality. Okay, I, I can see that, yes. Thank you, just a quick question. Uh, if only the Father knows the day and the hour uh, of the second coming, how should we address the Holy Spirit? You mean it, Does the knowledge? Holy Spirit know? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we have to affirm that the Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Trinity, is also omniscient, um, and that therefore the Holy Spirit and the Logos uh, in, the, in their divine natures do fully know that. Um, there's complete interchange and sharing of knowledge among the three persons of the Trinity. So we'll come back to this again, all of these difficult questions relating to Jesus' human limitations, but it seems to me that omniscience would require us to say that the Holy Spirit also knows this. Okay, is there any other question or discussion about this first point. Dr. Rick? Yes, Steve? I need to look it up, but I think somewhere in the Old Testament says, if God withdrew his spirit, all flesh would die. Now, is that a human spirit he's redrawing, or is that his divine spirit? Because I think there's only God's spirit, which is divine, which would imply that beneath us, before the sin nature translates it, uh -huh and destroys it, we have of his spirit. Yeah, I, when the scripture speaks of God's spirit, ruach, I think what it means is that spirit that is from God. It doesn't mean that God himself is embodied in all of these different people. It means that we have a soul or a spirit that is from God. And I think as Taiwan said, in the unregenerate unbeliever, that spirit is dead. It's not functioning to relate properly to God. And in the new birth, the Holy Spirit regenerates us so that that human spirit becomes alive and we can relate to God. But I, I would say again, we shouldn't say that the spirit that is in us is literally God uh, because that is a kind of way of affirming our deity, I think. Okay, I'll take one more comment or question. Boy, I, I think you can see how important these things are. Yes. Is it Elizabeth? Okay. So um, this is just going back to last week. We spent a lot of time talking about um, Philippians 2, where it says he emptied himself. Yes. So if we're saying that uh, kenosis is not correct, then how do you uh, read that verse? Thank you, Elizabeth. That is so important. So how should we understand kenosis? if it's not divestiture of divine attributes. I think what Paul's talking about is a change of status. Christ in his pre-incarnate state was glor in glory, 
uh, worshiped by the angels and so forth. He was, had a state of glory. And then he took on human nature. And it says he humbled himself and became obedient. So Christian theologians typically distinguish between the two states of Christ. The state of humiliation, which begins with the virginal conception and lasts until the burial. That's the state of humiliation. And this is then followed by the state of exaltation, uh, beginning with the descent into hell and the resurrection from the dead, in which Christ is restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the incarnation. And I, I feel confident that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, because he uses the language of humbling and servitude and so forth, but he still continues to worship Christ as God. Um, he doesn't think that God turned himself into a human being and, and is now merely a mortal man. So it's a change of status, I think, uh, the way kenosis should be properly understood. All right, well, this has been really good discussion, and uh, we'll continue uh, to develop our Christological model next time. Let's close with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we would pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we plumb these deep questions. We pray that you would help us to think critically and hard about these issues and so to embrace your truth without reservation or hesitation as it is delivered to us in Scripture. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.